This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Pints and Perspectives. This is, unfortunately, the final episode that we have to film with my good friend, mentor, uh, Ben Blackwell, with us. So grateful that he's chosen. He got here at 9.30 today, and we are now pushing the 4 o'clock hour, just grinding through all this content for you guys. So uh, I'm so grateful for Ben and him taking the day out of his writing sabbatical to come out here and spend this time and, and help our formation in this way. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, Colin said that he was going to uh, sell my books, but I hadn't heard any like, yeah, I gave a couple <laughs> no. of plugs. No, no, I did I give you. a couple of plugs and we frequently talk about engaging theology on, yeah. uh, our different podcasts, no, but, uh, that, that one, uh, I'm happy about this one will be a different nature. It's written to, you know, with the Greek and Hebrew crowd in mind. And so yeah. it's, a, a on the other end of the spectrum, but it's, uh, the one that I'm doing on justification right now, but, um, yeah, I'm happy uh, the way that one came out and hopefully it's uh, helpful to the broader world. Yeah, I think so. I, I have argued elsewhere that it is the single best resource for introduction to theology, just in the way that it frames uh, theology and all of the concepts within the greater narrative of Christian and salvation history. Uh, so very, very grateful for that. I am back here once again, Ben has to drive home in a bit. So, and we haven't eaten lunch yet. We're grinding through. So I have another beer here, but this is the eighth wonder brewery, which is a brewery here in Houston down by Minute Maid Park. And this is the Hopston. Once again, I'm a hop head. So, uh, I always like a good IPA. And Ben is on coffee, water, I'm not sure. But we are going to uh, talk about the kingdom of God uh, in its culmination. So in, in a Jewish system, it, it was very dualistic that you have this, uh, this age of wrath and the coming age of the Messiah or the kingdom of God, and that when the Messiah came, it would be a cease end to death and evil. The age of wrath would end, and it would it would be the thing. Well, it didn't materialize that way in a strict, uh, dualistic, Jewish kind of two-age system, but what ended up happening was an overlap that we still have, in the words of Paul, this present evil age, and yet we have realizations of the kingdom of God through the people of God. And so the kind of final piece that we need to look at is, is what is the culmination of the kingdom of God look like? Yeah, I would find that helpful. The, um, the dualism there, I guess, because I don't think this is what you're intending. It's a temporal dualism, not a spatial or right. ontological in that sense right. that it's, uh, it's the, um, you know, the present evil age versus the, the age to come. And so, um, yeah, how those overlap is always, uh, hard to articulate, to conceptualize, you know, it's, yep. uh, that's why we spent seven episodes trying to do it, you know, and it, you find, I, I, I find, 
uh, it common that most traditions tend to emphasize one or the other in the sense that you have the some systems that say the kingdom really, if it is here now, it's only a faint echo. Really, the kingdom won't happen till the future. And so the goal of a Christian is to what I call white knuckle it out. You know, you just hold mm-hmm. on tight for the ride because it's just things are just going to get worse and worse yeah. throughout history. Um, and ironically what happens, I think when that, in that spirit, if you have that view of the spiritual reality, what people do is actually turn to trying to create temporal kingdoms here and now. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. the more often the future you say the spiritual kingdom is, uh, what they end up doing is investing their time and emotions and political realities or other ways of creating their own little kingdoms here and now. Um, and I think that's unhealthy. The other side of it is that the kingdom is all here and now, you know, and so right, it's, it's an uh, over-realization. Yeah. You think, uh, and so oftentimes we talk about that as the prosperity gospels, right? A, a form of, um, the only reason God doesn't heal has nothing to do with God. It's only because you don't have enough faith or right. you haven't, you know, uh, it becomes almost like a karma or something like that. It's all on you. And the whole problem with that is like, no, the whole idea, why did Jesus say that there would be suffering? Why did he call his disciples to follow him in that path of suffering is because the kingdom is not fully here right. now and that healing and the restoration of the world will not happen until Christ comes again. And so uh, we live in that reality that the spirit is here. He's a true down payment, right? There's yep. something real here and now, but also not in its fullness. Of course, that's the yeah. already not yet. Yeah. And so when we talk about this, I think specifically for um, American Christianity, I think Scott McKnight, I mean, not Scott McNair, I'm sorry. I think Tom Wright does a really good job of this. You know, I have definitely mooched off of the connections that I have with Ben here, and I've been privileged to meet Tom Wright on several occasions and even share a meal with him on one occasion. And uh, just being in that proximity to him, in those ways you get to hear like questions and things asked and the way that he responds and you get a true sense of who he is more than just in his writings. But I don't remember exactly what the situation was and it may not even have been me in the times that I've been around him. But, um, oftentimes I think maybe he talked about it in one of his popular level books, but oftentimes people will come to him and go, well, can you talk to us about the rapture? Can you talk to us about this kind of end times, premillennial, Jerry B. Jenkins, Tim LaHaye kind of eschatology? And his, I can't remember where I where it happened, but his response was, you know, I only get that question in America. And the person asking the question seemed to think that this was like a very, um, this was a, a kudos, attaboy, you know, you're ahead of everybody else. Whereas what Tom actually meant was, you know, this theology is unique to you. No one else in the world actually views it this way. And Although the the Americans inherited it from a British guy, so yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but it very quickly dissipated from even that culture, and it's become prevalent and pervasive in our culture. So 
as someone who has one foot in American Christianity and uh, a deep love for British, UK, European theology, um, is that the way in which we should view eschatology and the kingdom, or should we view it in another way? Yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, I'm not a big fan of the rapture. I think it's an exegetically possible option. I mean, it, that's what the my problem with it. Do you a, think it's exegetically possible? Yeah, I, I, think so. I don't actually think it's possible. Yeah, I mean, it it, it it's a very brief term. I, in fact, I have a, a student in the UK that just finished a master's, uh, what they would call dissertation, master's thesis in the U.S. parlance on this. And his argument was, is that it was ambiguous enough in first Thessalonians that the, the whole, one of the reasons Paul wrote second Thessalonians was to ha- answer the ambiguity that was there. Now he was arguing so not just about rapture per se itself, but uh, in that, but some other questions that arise in first Thessalonians four and five. But, um, and I think that's right in the sense that to be taken taken away, right, or to meet in the air, um, it, it could mean that. Now, my my bigger problem with that theology is there's no other direct evidence of it in the rest of the Bible. And right, so, it's, a, it's a one-off theology. Yeah, you know, and so um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about being baptized for the dead, and so it's like, yeah, I, I, for one-off verses like that that are hard to manage, um, I don't know anybody that actually does that other than Mormons baptizing people for the dead, and so it's like I don't create a whole theology around a one-off verse. I try to make that verse fit where the the mass of other evidence fits. Yeah. So for those of you who are not familiar with what Ben is talking about here, this is in. 1 Corinthians 15, I believe it's verse 28, where Paul makes this passing comment as a way of grounding the argument that he's making about the resurrection of the dead, the general resurrection. But he says, if the general resurrection of the dead isn't a thing, why are you baptizing on behalf of the dead? So makes this passing statement, and which, by the way, I might mind you, he doesn't condemn them for it. Yeah, no, he thinks they like, should be doing it. Like, right, that's, that's the, the thing. He yeah. thinks they should be doing it, and yet that's the only reference we have to in the New Testament, so we don't do it. But that's what Ben is saying, is that we don't build theologies off of one-offs except when it comes to rapture theology. Yeah, and it, it becomes, I had an aunt that found out that I questioned the rapture, and behind Jesus dying on the cross, it was the most important doctrine in the Bible. Yeah. So I've told this story on, I think this podcast before, but I was, uh, mildly affiliated with a church, uh, a few years ago, at which point they said from the pulpit, if you don't believe in the rapture, you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's like, Oh, Okay, well, that's just fundamentally not true, but <laughs> there are millions and millions of Christians who do that very thing. Yeah, and so it for me, like in order of importance here, how many times did Jesus himself teach about the kingdom of God? How many times does the text explain and talk about the kingdom of God? Hundreds. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's pervasive. Yeah. And yet, most people, if you ask them, what is the gospel? Like, just ask that question. Me what? being saved from my sin and going away to heaven. Yeah, something like that. It, it, uh, they, 
this is a, a travesty that you, you know, what did, what is the gospel? You could ask, what did Jesus say the gospel is? Yeah. I don't think the average Christian could tell you. And yet it's like all over the place. It's the most important thing. It's about his identity, his, or the church's role. It's the snowman that you can't see all around your living room and kitchen. yeah, Yeah. So in that sense, it's like, why build such a huge structure around the rapture when yeah. the kingdom is uh, so much more central and important? And the bigger problem I have with the rapture is this, is that I, everywhere in the most apocalyptic texts we have, such as First and Second Thessalonians, First Peter, um, Revelation, Daniel, the whole idea is that the church suffers. And yeah. It's this uh, sense that we're going to, you know, uh, be drawn away from that. Again, it's a possibility, but I just don't see the rest of the thrust of the Bible is that, you know, and as the end times come, things will get harder. And so you're going to suffer through that. So be faithful in the midst of those difficult times. It's not, well, don't worry about it. You're going to be gone. Rapture theology is incongruent with the biblical narrative. Yeah, and I, I think that's, again, so if it's a one-off verse, how does that fit in the narrative? And the narrative always repetitively is be faithful because of hard times. So if that is the narrative, then how should we be thinking about the kingdom of God in uh, in light of apocalyptic texts and apocalyptic worldview? Uh, how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, so I think there's two aspects of that. When you think of what does the future look like, and we can talk about that, but what, what do you do in the present because of the future? And right, I think, how do you live now yeah. in light of what you know the promise of the future is? And I think that's, by and large, the New Testament doesn't give a lot of specifics about the future. Uh, it present, presents this broad picture. Yeah. But the New Testament is, and the Old Testament is full of texts that talk about being faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. Yeah. So living your life in the present in light of your hope for the future. And so eschatology, you know, is the fancy word for all this end time yep. stuff. And so in the midst of that, we have made eschatology all about when is the temple going to be rebuilt? Who is the Antichrist? Mm. Is the Pope the Antichrist? And made, all, it, made it very dispensational in, in worldview. Yeah, and so that it plays out. I, I think even some non-dispensational folks uh, have hitched their train to that bandwagon, and they're very concerned about, these events. Um, and yet the, the focus of the text is not, uh, when or how those events are going to take place. It's how you should live here and now. So it's living your life differently in the present because of your hope for the future. So it's living a blameless life because you know that a judgment will come in the end. Mm. It's living a, um, sacrificial life because you know that whatever you give up now will be repaid in the future. Yeah. And so it's not about which individual person is the antichrist and that kind of thing. And, and, and partially that's because the world is going to continually face these difficult circumstances. So we're living in the time of a plague um, and it's killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Yep. Uh, even a million worldwide. Well, when you th- you know, devastating, um, you know, huge problems that it's created. 
Well, if you think about the the Black Plague and the what is it, the 14th century yeah, or 15th yeah. century, whatever it was, wipes out like what 20 percent of the population. Yeah, or we're talking about millions of people dying. Yeah. Now, those people, I think, had a reason to read Revelation literally. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it looked like, you know, one of the judgments. It looked like catastrophe. Yeah, it was playing out. Now, what I would say there is, like, partially why people can, should, and do read Revelation as a contemporary text for us uh, is because we are constantly living out that timeless battle between good and evil, and there's Mm -hmm. that timeless call for the church to come out from yeah. the world in the way that we're embedded in the economic and, and social systems that are actually anti-God um, and their orientation. And so in that sense though, but is, was revelation written about 21st century America? I don't know that, you know, we're the center of that story, right? It's yeah. not about us so much as it is about the people of God in history. And so in that sense, that call to patience and suffering is and faithfulness in the midst of um, appeals to be unfaithful or to live your life according to the kingdom of uh, this world is much more central to those texts. Yeah. So as we think about this, because Revelation by its very nature is apocalyptic, which makes it very, uh, I don't want to say imaginative, but it's full of imagery and things. And and that's the other thing that's interesting about apocalyptic literature that I actually got this from my uncle Tim, who I think you were on his podcast not too long ago. Uh, Those apocalyptic texts, they say, this is what I see and never say this is what it means. Yeah. They they don't ex, they don't exposit the vision for us. Yeah, yeah, they leave. They just say like generally, this is what I see, and so it means that that we really struggle interpreting those. For Revelation, I think for me as I read it, what we can definitely hold to is, is that there's an ultimate conquering of evil, that that happens, and that there's a restoration of heaven and earth together. And I say restoration because, and this is just my take on it as a student of story and narrative uh, and adjacent to theology, I'd love to know your thoughts on the theological elements of it. But for me, when we read story and narrative, the beginning piece of the story sets the stage for what's to come, and eventually we get introduced into an antagonist. Right, we get introduced into someone who interrupts the setting and stage, which becomes the thing we're trying to overcome. And so the end of the story must resolve the conflict introduced in the beginning. So for me, as I read it, I'm much more likely to pass over Jesus' statements on mansions and gold streets and go, well, the culmination of the kingdom of God is a restoration of Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the end of the story must resolve the conflict from the beginning of the story. Yeah, and that's, uh, so, you know, if you look at the end of Revelation 21, 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, they're actually full of Im- imagery that come from the first two chapters in the Bible, from Genesis 1 and 2. Right. 
Uh, so what you're, you know, you're alluding to that idea that creation or re restored, um, new creation isn't, you know, the trashing you, you burn up, you know, God's plan B it's a renewal of what God's original intention was right. in the first place. So, yeah. And I, I think that, uh, is quite central to the narrative arc there. And again, the Bible project, heaven and earth video, I think gets that really well of that linking of creation and new creation. One of the things that's, uh, is interesting in, in revelation as, um, and Daniel is how much the idea of kingdom actually is at the center of that. So revelation 11 has this key verse that when it's talking about the work of Jesus, that, um, that we find in Handel's Messiah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ or of his Messiah. Mm. Oh yeah. And that's the whole, that that's the, oh. the whole gospel in a nutshell, right? Yeah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so that's the hope of revelation is that the kingdom is fulfilled and it's a both now, not yet. Right. So the, those last few chapters of revelation speak to that. It's not us going up to heaven, right? It's heaven heaven come down down to to earth. earth. And so in that sense, that's what the whole idea of kingdom is about is heaven come down to earth. Um, can't believe we've kind of passed over this without talking about it more fully, but in the Lord's prayer, right? Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And so that's the whole idea of what Jesus was about is bringing, you know, in the the language of the Bible project, these pockets of heaven now, but the whole merging of earth will be filled with God's glory and his presence. And so that heaven will be here on earth. And so it's, um, you know, it's a it's a world affirming language, right? Yeah. In the sense of why do we have these bodies that God was it a mistake that God put us his bodies living on bodies on the planet Earth? And it's like, no, it wasn't a mistake that he has to make up for later by sucking us up to in the cosmic vacuum cleaner up to heaven. The whole idea is that he intended us to live in this world with plants and trees and animals and, and things like that. And so right. the um, the reason we care about the, uh, death and the reason we care about, uh, the destruction of the world is because, uh, we care about it. Right. Uh, in the sense that if trash, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, we lived out in West Texas, um, out on a ranch and we burned our trash We had mm. a barrel, you know, that we burned our trash in. Um, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> right. Today. Yeah. It's great when not, you had a, not great for carbon emissions. No, <laughs> it was great when you had a hairspray can in there. It'd make a nice little <laughs> explosion. Yeah. For, you know, nine or 10 year old. That was yeah. great. But the whole idea is like, I wasn't bothered by trash burning up. I didn't right. care about it. Right. You only care about something being destroyed if you think it is of value. Right. And so the reason we are bothered by death is because we know inherently our bodies have value. And so, yeah, God cares about this even more than we do, you know? Uh, and so that's why healing is so central to Jesus's own ministry of the body, but even more so the idea of resurrection and the hope of the world to come where our bodies will live as the way God intended it. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting that you brought up the Lord's prayer because I was going to bring that up as well. Um, I'm currently writing a paper 
for uh, my Gospels and Acts class that's being taught by David Capes. And uh, I'm reading a book, actually, I think by your friend, uh, Nijay Gupta. Uh, were, y'all, were y'all fellow doctoral students at the same time, or what's that relationship? Yeah, that's right. We started at the same time. Okay. He, he and uh, another friend of mine, John Goodrich, just published a book called Sin and Its Remedy. And Okay. I got a copy in the mail and it sat on my desk for three or four days. And John Goodrich, the co-author, uh, co-editor, emailed me and said, did you ever open that book? And actually, DJ and John had dedicated it to me. So it was. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Was, uh, such a pleasure. So that that just came out. Yeah. So. so DJ wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, and he's been super helpful for me in this. Um, I don't know that I agree fully with the argument. I'm, I'm taking a different approach in my paper, but. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, he actually seems to have his foundation in the Kaddish, which is a Jewish prayer that was prayed after the sermon in synagogue and temple. And in the prayer, it is an eschatological prayer. Well, Jesus takes the bones of that prayer, this eschatological prayer, and turns it into a present reality. Okay. That the Ah. kingdom of God come uh, to earth yeah he takes yeah. an eschatological idea and makes it a present reality okay which i think is true to how we should view the eschaton that we should be living in light of the coming promise and i don't know a single person who does this better than david capes i know i'm name dropping him a lot but he really made me question something so we we're in class, and if you've ever been in a seminary class, you know that um, seminary classes become very transparent about the time of midterms. Like you get to really know people after that time, and then especially if you've had multiple classes with the same people. But the professors really become begin to become themselves after midterms, and Doctor Capes tries to be a vegetarian, and if you've ever tried to be a vegetarian. Uh, you quickly identify with people who equally try to be a vegetarian. My wife and I tried to do the vegetarian vegan thing on multiple different occasions and we're still sensitive to it. We fail quite often. Um, and we're fixing to fail right now cause I'm currently making carnitas in the other room. But, uh, Dr. Capes mentioned that he was a vegetarian and I asked him last night at class why, because, Somebody had bought pizza for the seminar, uh, just as like a, a show of generosity. And Dr. Capes only got the vegetarian pizza. There's like one spinach and mushroom pizza out of like a, a, a set of pizzas. And he got the vegetarian one. And said, so, Dr. Capes, why are you vegetarian? Is it ethical? Like, is it conservationism? Uh, or is it theological? And he just looked at me and said, because when the Messiah comes, there's no more death. It's like I'm living now in light of the promise that when the the culmination of the kingdom of God, when the Messiah comes in his fullness, there is no more death. And by its very nature, eating meat is death. Yeah. I just thought that was such a good way to think about living in light of the coming fulfillment of eschatology and the realization of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think, so we mentioned this earlier, that we live according to kind of the moral standards that we think will happen there. I don't, 
it, it makes sense that we would live according to the, you know, environmental, physical yeah. world. Um, you know, that that is, is as much a gospel presentation, you know, as the yeah. things that we do. Um, yeah, I haven't thought of it in those terms, but yeah, that's powerful. Well, I know you you have pushed me in that way some uh, more on an ethical side in, in line with your doctor father, John Barclay, uh, that the consumption of meat has overall economic effects on the the poor based on grain prices and, and carbon emissions and just all of like how this fits in the grand scheme of things. But for our purposes here is the kingdom of God as a realized eschatology I think I've never heard it explained in such a great way as, yeah. as David did. No, no, that's, uh, I think that is as much as anything speaks to the connection there. And it, you know, as much as I think that there is a realized eschatology, I mean, it's uh, more, it's a, you know, it's that tension as well, that it's a significant portion that's unrealized and that, you know, we look at the problem of race or economics or, I mean, it just like there are still, um, and well, even when you don't have it in kind of more social things, like just the, the scars that people face from their family situations, yeah. you know, or marriages. I mean, there are a couple of women in my home group right now, actually three, uh, um, that have been in abusive, you know, situations, yeah. uh, spousal abuse and just horrible things to, the, you know, the scars that we live with and the sins in the world. And so it's, um, I was reading a book the other day about Ernst Kaysman, a new Testament scholar who lived through world war II, And, you know, one of his, um, key themes about the apocalyptic is just how we should never forget how evil <laughs> the world yeah. is, you know, and just that hope mm. of why resurrection, why, you know, the restoration of creation like Romans eight or, and Re revelation, how much of a real hope that is to look yeah. forward to, you know? And so it, it's, um, you know, for us, I mean, you know, there's, past decade, you know, a lot of talk about the 1%, yep. um, in the history of the world, you know, middle-class America is the 1%, right? I mean, Oh yeah, for you, sure. You, I mean, my parents, uh, my dad, when he graduated high school, they had an outhouse <laughs> still, right. you know, and just like the luxury we live in, uh, today. And yet we still feel like we're, we need to keep up with the Joneses, you know, yeah. and invest more and more And our houses are twice as, you know, the average house in America is twice the size it was 60 years ago. I was listening. David Capes was talking about this last night, actually in class, that if you go buy a house from that was built a hundred years ago, that hasn't been renovated, they don't have closets. Okay. Yeah. Because everybody had standalone wardrobes. Yeah. You could fit all of your clothing in one upright wardrobe. Yep. And then at the mid century mark, we started making little closets that were built into the walls that were slightly bigger than a wardrobe, but they were built into the home, but not significantly bigger. Okay. okay. And here in the last 15 years, we have walk-in closets. Yeah. Yeah. That we, we've accumulated so much stuff that we now could fit 
a lot of people have whole offices that are smaller than some walk-in closets. Yeah. No. And then, um, the storage units that people rent. Oh yeah. I mean, just like this accumulation of material goods is, uh, we're embarrassed, you know, uh, by our riches. And yet we, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a condemnation on us of the lack of resources that people have. And yet we can't, you know, we don't have a space or the money to keep up with all the things we do have. I mean, it just yeah. amazes me the hundreds of dollars a month people will pay just to store their material goods that they don't use. That they don't use hardly ever. Yeah. And it's yeah. a condemnation on us that, gosh, what good would that do for others that uh, go without? So even just the, even just the storage cost, right? Like getting rid of that stuff in order to give that money away. Yeah. Much less. Yeah. What it costs to get it in the first place. Right. To, yeah. I mean, it, it just, we, and, and so it's, it's the links that we go to, to satisfy our temporal wants mm. are, um, shocking, I guess, in the history of the world. And so it, it we could live a very comfortable lifestyle, but more minimalistic. Yeah. And have more than enough to live on. Yeah. Um, but it's that sense. And I think it's a lack of eschatology is because we've so much lost the sense that the future is where the fullness will come, that we we quit living for the future and we only live for the present. Mm, Yeah. 